This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. This is a Business Radio special. Marijuana. Canna Business. A look at the marijuana industry. Here's your host, John Barquette. Hello and welcome to Canna Business, a look at the marijuana industry. Our two-hour special here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm John Barquette, and today we're bringing you special programming. For the next two hours, we're going to take a look at the current and future state of the marijuana industry. According to a recent Pew Research Center survey, about 6 in 10 Americans support marijuana legalization. That's double what it was in 2000, and popular belief is that the legal cannabis industry is poised for explosive growth. Today we'll speak with a variety of experts and cover a range of topics about the industry, including the legal landscape, policy barriers, investing in cannabis, medical marijuana, and how to market a product whose legal future has so much uncertainty. To start off, we're going to talk about the changing landscape of the marijuana industry. I'm thrilled to welcome my first guest. Steve D'Angelo is a globally renowned cannabis activist, investor, and a true industry pioneer. Steve, welcome to the show. Uh, Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. My second guest is Professor Paul Seaborn, who created and still teaches the country's first business of marijuana course at the University of Denver. Uh, Professor Seaborn, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be here. So thank you both for joining me. I want to start with Steve. Um, Steve, uh, you're a legend in in this industry. Can you give us a little bit about your background and how and when you got started in the cannabis industry? Oh, well, um, uh, I got started in the cannabis industry shortly after I got introduced to cannabis, and that was uh, way back uh, when I was about 13 years ago, So uh, when I was 13 years old. So, you know, we're talking about the early 1970s. Uh, none of that activity was, was legal cannabis business, though. So my first uh, can- legal cannabis business was a company called Ecolution, which I launched in 1989. It was an industrial hemp company. And for about 10 years, we imported, um, uh, we, we made uh, consumer goods out of hemp in Eastern Europe and imported them to the United States and about 20 other countries. So that was the first uh, foray. Then um, sometime later, I came to, after, after Ecolution, the next uh, notable um, company that I formed is, uh, is Harborside, uh, which was one of the first six uh, licensed cannabis dispensaries in the United States. That came when the city of Oakland uh, licensed uh, commercial cannabis activity in 2006. Um, that, that project was designed to provide a, a, an example of a gold standard for cannabis retailing, and, and it was quite successful um, and led to a couple of other companies. Uh, one uh, was Steep Hill Laboratory. At the time I opened Harborside, I had checked with every testing lab in the Bay Area to try and get them to test our cannabis, and they all refused out of a concern for federal law. So I, I was really concerned about providing cannabis to, to people with potentially compromised immune systems without it being thoroughly tested. And so I formed a company called Steep Hill Laboratory, along with a couple other co-founders. And that was the first dedicated uh, cannabis analytics company. And then... Um, the, uh, I think the third notable thing uh, uh, is the Arcview Group, um, which uh, started about a year after Steep Hill. This was about 2010, 
that we started the ArcView Group with my co-founder, Troy Dayton. And the idea behind the ArcView Group was to create a community where investors who are interested in the new legal cannabis industry could meet uh, promising cannabis entrepreneurs who were looking for, for growth capital. All three of those businesses, actually all four of those businesses, ultimately ended up uh, sparking uh, industry sectors that are now quite large. Can you give us a summary of how the landscape has evolved since since you've been involved? Now, you're talking about going back to the 70s, and I imagine back then becoming an entrepreneur in this business, was you probably got some dirty looks when, when you sort of told people that. In 2006, seven, I'm curious what it was like then. Now I'm sure people are looking at you saying, wow, you've 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 really timed this really well but how has that evolved over time well you know i've learned uh that the difference between a prophet and a criminal is is very slender sometimes yeah and um well you know in the 1970s when when i sold cannabis it was all illegal it was illegal in the 1970s illegal in the 1980s it was illegal in the 1990s i did it then as i'm doing it now because i believe this plant has a tremendous amount uh to offer the world so I, I think that the most defining, the biggest difference is just that 2006 mark, because it was the first time that I was able to publicly, openly uh, begin to, to sell cannabis and to do it in a way that I thought was, was really worthy of, of the plant. So I, I'd say that was the biggest change for me is just the shift from being a underground cannabis entrepreneur to being a, a legal licensed cannabis entrepreneur uh, uh, was tremendous. So remind us where we are today in terms of state and federal law. You can do this, I assume, because of, of state law. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So California was the first state to pass medical cannabis legislation. It did that in 1996 via a voter initiative, Prop 215. Um, but the state did not, despite the initiative asking them to, the state, because of political pressures, never actually regulated the, the sale and cultivation of cannabis in California. So uh, unlicensed dispensaries just started popping up, and in many cases they were, they were kind of problematic operations. Um, and one of the places that happened was Oakland. So the city of Oakland responded by uh, passing the first ordinance to license cannabis businesses and regulate them. And, uh, and we received one of those uh, uh, first six uh, cannabis licenses. So um, uh, that, uh, that, that was a, you know, that was um, uh, a, a landmark watershed moment. I think I lost the last part of your question. Well, it was, it was about the federal landscape as well. And, you know, it's in state law, you were able to, because of state law, you were able to get these businesses going federally. Where are we right now? Federally, uh, cannabis remains illegal. Um, it is as it was in 1996. It is a Schedule One controlled substance under federal law, uh, meaning that it, it, it is sanctioned uh, with the same the same kind of penalties that heroin is or or cocaine. Um, and uh, <clears throat> that that may change in the near future, uh, but it hasn't changed yet. And so. When we, um, the difference is that when we first opened our doors, um, the federal government, then George W. Bush was president, was still actively raiding cannabis dispensaries. They were arresting people. They were taking them to prison. They were charging them. Some of the people arrested in those days are still sitting in prison today, essentially for doing the same thing uh, that, that people are, are doing now. 
Um, the difference is that is that for the past several years, the U.S. Congress has passed a rider on the annual budget bill uh, saying that the Drug Enforcement Administration, the Department of Justice, could not spend any funds to enforce federal cannabis law uh, that, uh, in states that already had legal medical cannabis. And Attorney General Barr uh, has just confirmed that he intends to continue following that policy. So basically we have cannabis is illegal for any purpose, even medical purposes under federal law now. Um, uh, but um, uh, the federal government has recognized the right of the states to regulate in the, in the way that they see fit. Let's go over to Paul Seaborn now. Paul, if there is a sign that an industry uh, is is up and coming or has arrived, I should say, it's that professors are teaching business courses about it in universities. You developed a course on the business of marijuana. Can you tell us about the course and its conception at the University of Denver? Yeah, I think it was really a matter of being in the right place at the right time and, and seeing the opportunity. And here in Colorado, that time was 2011 when I moved from Canada to Denver, and that was just as the first statewide legal regulated medical market was starting. And as Steve mentioned, that wasn't even really in place in California at that time. And so as someone who studies business government interactions, that definitely got my attention, even though I really didn't know too much about the specifics. Uh, And yet the course itself didn't launch until spring of 2017. So it took a while to build my own personal network and understand what was happening in our market here in Colorado, and also to hear from students at our university that they had an interest and a demand for the class. And of course, there was no textbook that you could pull off the shelf. So we put it together and launched it in in 2017. And by the end of this year, we will have taught it uh, four times. Uh, And it's really had a big impact. We have a number of students working in the industry. And uh, I think all of the students that have come through have really come away with a really unique uh, understanding of something that's pretty, uh, pretty new and evolving quickly. What are the takeaways from the class? I mean, what, what is the syllabus, the outline of the syllabus? Like, what are you, what are you trying to impart on the students? Yeah, so, you know, I'm a management professor, and we try to look at the business side, you know, knowing that there are so many other uh, aspects that, that other people will, will help us with around, you know, the effects of the, the product medically and, and socially. Uh, and so the three big takeaways I have for my students, I think first for them to see that this is truly a unique industry and, and to understand why that's the case, right? The, this plant that the industry is based on can take an amazing number of forms, and it also has an amazing number of uses, and that, that's pretty uh, unique in itself. The history, you know, a little bit of which uh, Steve referenced, really has shaped where it is today, and we're in a, a very unusual like legal and regulatory environment, not just here in Colorado or in the U.S., but in other countries as well. So I want them to see that even though there might be some similarities to another industry like alcohol or tobacco or, or pharma. So let me just reset for our listeners. We are talking today about cannabis, the business of marijuana. Our guests in the first part of the show are cannabis activist Steve D'Angelo and University of Denver professor Paul Seaborn, talking about the marijuana legal landscape on SiriusXM's Cannabis Special. Paul Seaborn was the first person to start a business of marijuana class at the University of Denver. Steve, um, I wanted to ask you about what the future holds. We've got business courses taught at universities about marijuana, and that is a sign that an industry has arrived. And yet, this industry, I suspect, you'd probably still consider it as not being fully uh, fully matured yet. Can you tell us about what the next few years are going to look like? It is just beginning. My prediction is that in coming decades, cannabis will come to be the number one most valuable commodity on the planet. It will be bigger than oil, 
It will be bigger than anything else. Uh, cannabis is going to disrupt just about every single industry you can think of. Okay, give me an example of how you think that's going to work. Why, why disruption? Why can't this just be another, uh, another product that people buy? Well, because we have to stop cutting down trees and we have to stop pumping up oil. Um, we need to stop growing uh, crops like cotton that demand an incredible amount of pesticides in order to be grown profitably. And we need to switch to a new industrial feedstock that's going to allow us to make the goods that we depend on for our sustenance without poisoning the planet. You know, time is, is evidently pretty short to address the environmental problems that we're looking at. And uh, hemp, cannabis hemp, is a eco-friendly raw material. You can grow magnitudes, multiples, more biomass uh, on an acre of hemp in a year than you can with an acre of trees over more periods of time. And, uh, and cannabis is very rich in cellulose, which is the, you know, the essential ingredient in all of these products, oil, petroleum, um, cotton, and trees. So uh, that's the promise that, that hemp holds, that, uh, you know, imagine a truck uh, full of boxes, and a truck delivering Amazon boxes, and all of the boxes in that truck are made out of hemp paper. And all of the goods that are in those boxes are wrapped in packages, and the paper and the plastic on those packages is all made out of hemp. That truck, truck uh, is powered by hemp biodiesel or electricity that's produced with hemp biodiesel. Right? The fiberboards that were used to construct the interior panels of the truck are all made out of hemp. The driver's uniform, the driver's shoes, her socks, uh, the carpeting uh, in the truck, all of that is made out of hemp, and all of it is sustainable. So that's the that's the promise. Just in, in you know, in one little truck, you can take a look at, at at disruption to paper. You can take a look at disruption to petroleum, um, and uh, and we haven't even started to talk about the things that would be inside those packages. So, for example, one of the things that we found about hemp is that it's a great source of plastic. And it shows a promise to be perhaps the best kind of plastic for 3D printing. So if we move to a future where most of our goods are made by 3D printing instead of in large centralized factories, um, we can see a, a situation where a very large uh, number of all the things that are made out of plastic today, uh, petroleum-derived plastic, are made out of hemp. So this is the potential that it holds. It, it seems like you're describing a, what I might call a hemptopia, and yet there's a huge roadblock uh, from my perspective to getting there, which is just how the federal government uh, currently views cannabis today. And I, I, it's easy to kind of say, well, let's assume that that problem gets solved. Let's assume that the federal government decides to think about hemp, say, the way we think about, I don't know, alcohol or some other, some other product. But, but how, how is that going to happen? I mean, I get that advocates can go to Washington, they can knock on doors, they can make their case. You know, I, I, I still don't well, see necessarily this happening, say, this year or next year. So if, if it's going to happen, how will that work? Well, I mean, one way that it could happen is there's legislation currently pending in the Congress called the States Act. And okay. the States Act would formalize the policy which has been articulated by Attorney General Barr in statute. And it would say that the federal government now formally recognizes all of the state laws as having force and and authority. Um, if they did that, they could also um, uh, open up interstate trade. 
Um, and uh, and I think that 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 something like that is going to happen. So here's the reality of it. Cannabis is such a safe and such a valuable product that now that we have some legal markets and, you know, cannabis, there's only four states in the United States that haven't reformed their cannabis laws in some way. And what happens is as that happens, people who never considered using cannabis before come into contact with it. And they find out that all of the information that they've received for all of these years is inaccurate, that actually cannabis is a safe and valuable product that brings value to their lives. Think about somebody who's in their 70s or 80s who who has some kind of grave illness. They are recommended cannabis by their doctor. They use it to great effect. It could be epilepsy. It could be cancer. It could be some kind of chronic pain. And then they tell their friends about it. And then their friends try it. And then those friends tell other friends and relatives about it. And this is really what's what's driving the change in attitudes that we've seen. The reality is that cannabis is an incredibly valuable, beneficial, and safe substance. And the more that Americans have the experience to directly come into contact with it, the more comfortable they're going to become with it and reform will spread. Steve, I've got you on here for just a couple more minutes. I, I did want to ask one follow-up question, which is, are, are there more um, relaxed laws in other countries around the marketing of cannabis or hemp-based products? And if so, has the kind of revolution that you're describing in, in industry, has it started to take hold there? And if not, why not? Well, there's, there's a big difference in, in what kind of marketing is allowed, uh, whether you're talking about hemp products, industrial hemp products, which have 0.3% THC or less, or cannabis products that, that, that are rich in THC. So in California, uh, under our, our cannabis laws, there are a great number of restrictions on the ways that we can market and the ways that, that we can advertise. Um, and um, and uh, that's true in, in most other states. Um, however, uh, uh, that's not true with hemp products. They can be advertised on just about any advertising or marketing platform that other products are. Okay. All right. Very good. And then my, my last question to you is, uh, what's what's next for Steve D'Angelo? Where, where are you where are you going to be focusing your efforts in the next year? Well, I'm I'm it's you know very fortunate that that um, that the companies that I've built have 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 you know, achieve some success and look like they're poised to achieve some more success uh, uh, shortly. And that's going to give me um, the the professional and personal freedom to focus on what I really enjoy doing most, which is telling the story of cannabis and introducing it to people. So uh, I hope to be able to focus more on, on talking to the world about cannabis and, and a little bit less on day-to-day business operations. Okay. Steve D'Angelo, thanks so much. Um, Paul, I wanted to know about student interest in your class. Are people uh, kind of casually walking in, or are they banging down the door? So, yeah, it took a few days or weeks, I guess, to get the, the word out. But, uh, yeah, we've we've had a, a pretty amazing level of interest. The very first day of the class, we had a TV crew in the room, uh, lots of media coverage. And, you know, over the last couple of years, I've had retired alumni, university staff, dispensary owners, you know, parents of students, all sorts of interest. I want to say thank you to both Steve D'Angelo and Paul Seaborn for coming on the show. I'm John Barquette, and you're listening to Cannabis, a look at the marijuana industry here on Sirius XM 132. Like us us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Sirius XM Business Radio. And follow us on Twitter at BizRadio132. This is Business Radio. Business Radio. Radio. Powered by the Wharton School. 
For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.